So we're in John chapter 16, and what we're doing is we're coming to the end of these conversations uh, based on Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. And so we looked at this concept of the spirit of truth on Sunday. So that's, the, that's kind of the framework to set up our talk tonight. So look with me at verse 7 of John chapter 16. John 16 and verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And it's worth repeating the, the main application here of verse number 7 is that Jesus is teaching them that the, the Spirit's presence is better. It's more beneficial for the believer than the physical presence of Jesus. The, the, the Spirit's presence in our lives is more beneficial than, than even Jesus' physical presence. But now he speaks a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, and he says, And when he is come, he will, re- he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So you've noticed, it, and we emphasize this, there's a shift in the role that the Holy Spirit is playing. So prior to this, as Jesus has introduced the Holy Spirit to the disciples, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Comforter. And this is for the benefit of the disciple, the, the follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes alongside and he walks with and he advocates for and he encourages and he strengthens and he equips. And all those things are very true. But you notice there's a new function, there's a new role that he plays in the verses that we just read. And that is he, he has a reproving world. He has a role. He has a convicting role. He speaks in the hearts of the people of the world. And we, and we spoke about that on Sunday. And now he's given a new name in verse 13, but let's look at verse 12 first. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, when he is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you." Now, I want to just quickly walk through the handout from Sunday to see what points that we, that we made from this. So, this whole idea that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and I hope you picked up as we read that, really, when it speaks of truth, the focus is on the truth about who Jesus is, right? It, you saw that part where Jesus said, He is going to speak of me. He's not going to speak of Himself. So as the apostles are given the role of being the witnesses of Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit that is going to be the ultimate witness. So the Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness of who Jesus is. And so we talked a little bit about the importance of the truth. 
And so on the inside of that handout, the first thing we noticed was in the first uh, section of verses, verses 8 through 11, that the Holy Spirit has a witness in the world. And you see that when he has come, he will reprove the world. He'll reprove the world of sin, verse number 8, and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit has a a truth-telling role in the world. And three things that he convicts people of and he reproves people of is their sin, the standard of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, and then thirdly, that there is a certain judgment to come, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that is how he he, uh, ministers truth to the world. But secondly now, in the second section, he is, we see how the Holy Spirit ministers truth to the believer, particularly to the disciples. Now, do you notice the shift here in verse number 12? So up until now, he's reproving the world. But now in verse number 12, this is a really important statement. Jesus says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them when? Now. So... Jesus does not have a lot of time left with them. And he's taught them a lot in the last three and a half years. But he says, he doesn't say, I've just got one more thing to tell you. He says, I have got a lot more information to give you. But this isn't the right time. Now, I'll take your thoughts really quickly. Why do you think it's not the right time? Why do you think Jesus says, this, this is not the right, you cannot receive it now? Yes. Okay, sure. Why, so why else might this not be they not ready to hear this? Because he hasn't died yet. So he hasn't died yet. The, the death of Christ is going to change everything, but then even more significantly, what else is going to change their perspective? Resurrection. The resurrection. So all of these things are pre, pre-death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, under what... Under what system are they, are they still? The law. The law. They're under what he, Hebrews refers to as the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. We divide them, we divide our Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament, obviously, but the New Testament didn't take effect until what happened? Until the death of Christ. It was at the death, at the death of Christ, that he ushered in the New Testament. So, the, the apostles are going to be the ones that bring about this teaching regarding the New Testament. And Jesus says, I've got a lot more to tell you. There's a whole lot more, but it is not time yet. You're not ready for this yet. Is that, we all on the same page there? Any thoughts, comments, questions regarding that before we move on? Okay. So, but notice this, in verse number 13 now, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So it would seem as if Jesus is saying, I have a lot to tell you, 
but I am not going to be the one to physically tell it to you. Who is going to be the one that reveals it to you? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. Now, I'm pretty strongly convinced that this is not a promise here that is being made generically to all believers. Although we know from the Scripture, does the Holy Spirit guide us in truth? From other Scriptures, yes, we know that. But given the context and the specifics of what Jesus is saying here, I believe what you're reading is an apostolic commissioning right now and a unique ministry that the Holy Spirit had to the apostles. Now, there's a few clues to that. One is obviously Jesus says, I've got a lot more things to say. And he doesn't spell, spell them out. Where do we find them spelled out? Where, where do we find those many things that Jesus had to say that the Holy Spirit revealed? Where do we then find those things spelled out? Not in the Gospels, because we're at the end of the Gospels right now. So Jesus says, I've got a lot more to say to you. So where do we find those things, Jim? Well, one question would, I would think would be the, uh, after he's resurrected, the uh, conversation he had with Peter at, when uh, they went fishing and he had fish and sure. stuff cooking in the fire. There would be more things that Jesus would say to them as after he's resurrected. He did not spend a lot of time with them. But given what he says here is, I have more things to say, but he seems to indicate here that he's not the one that's going to say it. It's going to be the Spirit. Other Jim. <laughs> well, I would say the book of Revelation, because the first verse says that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. 100% it's going to be in the book of Revelation. That is correct. That is, that is not the complete answer, but that is a correct answer, because he does say here, I will show you things to come. Bill. I would say that Right. Well, I think he's speaking to all of them. He didn't tell all of them everything. He told all of, collectively, he told all of them everything. But yeah, the epistles, what we have, and this is really important. What we have in the epistles, all of our New Testament after the Gospels, all of that New Testament is what the, whole, what the church has historically believed. This is the revelation of the Holy Spirit to the apostles, to the apostles. That this promise in, in John chapter 16, verse 13, was a promise for the coming of the rest of the scriptures that we would receive. It's really important. We have a habit of taking everything that is said anywhere in the Bible and automatically always applying it directly to ourselves. But that's not appropriate biblical interpretation. You always have to consider the, the original writing, the original audience, the context, the intent, and then how that would, how that would play out. So I, what you're seeing here is this promise that, and that's why how we looked at it Sunday was this is the witness of the Holy Spirit in the Word. The witness in the Word. Now, and with that, I said we would speak more about the apostles and this apostolic gift tonight. And so I kind of put that on the shelf on Sunday.
for us to do a little bit deeper dive as to why the apostles, who were the apostles, and what does, what does the scripture say about all of this. So if you take the insert now, we're going to spend the, the rest of our time looking at several passages that I think flesh out what is being introduced here in John 16. Now, the apostles. The idea of who the apostles are, what the apostolic office is, is a, is a, crucial, is a crucial element to understanding Christianity. The whole reason people say, people will say, well, why do we accept these books of the New Testament as authoritative? Why do we accept them as the Word of God? Were there other books that, were, that, that we have historical record of being written in the first century? We absolutely do. There are several. Were they religious books? Were they even Christian books written in the first century? Yes, there were. But the church has not recognized those within what is called, and if you, if you are new to this kind of thing, you'll want to write a word down, and that's the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N, C-A-N-O-N, the canon of Scripture. Those are the books that have been recognized historically by the church as the Word of God. How that was determined was, does the book, is the book received by the churches as authentic from an apostle. Now, why? Go ahead, Mike. Well, there's th there are there are books like the Gospel of Thomas, etc. So that, that's a whole, it's, it's related to this discussion. I'm not prepared to go into a whole topic on that tonight. Um, for one thing, I'm ill-prepared to do that this evening. But to give you a superficial answer that then you can do more study on, I would say that the canon of Scripture is, a lot of people will say, well, it wasn't until the 300s that you even got your New Testament recognized. However, when the canon was established in the 300s, it was based on what books were in use by the churches. So it had already been, these books had already been received by the church in active use among the churches, and it was officially recorded that these are the books. Somebody got around to writing it down and saying it. So there was a historical usage that, for the 27 books of the New Testament that we have. Now, on to the main, the, the, the main point I want to emphasize is this, though, um, and that's a, that's a good study, but what was determinative is, does this book carry the seal of apostleship? Now, why was that the important question? That is the important question because Jesus gave that authority to the apostles. No one else had that authority. Now, let me give you, let, let me explain that. So, if you look on this handout, as we think about the apostles, first of all, note this, the apostles' mission, the mission that they were given by Christ was specifically laying the foundation of the church. You see this recorded in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Notice this. This is a description of your, your belonging to the church of Christ, the universal church. You belong to, to the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we as the members of the body, we as the members of the body of Christ, we are not the foundation. We are built on the foundation. Who make up the foundation? Who makes up the foundation? The apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So, with that being said, the church has always recognized that Jesus has commissioned his apostles. Now, for that reason, now this is interesting, you will find denominations today, some mainline denominations, and, and almost all cults will have some form of active apostleship today. So, in the Roman Catholic tradition, who inherits apostleship? The Pope inherits apostleship. In other spin-off denominations, or in, in, then in extreme instances like the cults, like Mormonism, they have appointed their own apostles. In the same way, Protestant denominations are, are divided on the issue. Some say that they have an unbroken line of bishops that go back to the apostles. Others don't. Now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to, I'm going to make the argument tonight that that is unbiblical, so that's where we're going. But let me ask you this question. For these denominations, these churches, these groups, in, not in all cases, but in most cases, why are, they so, why are they so interested in saying that they have preserved the office of the apostle? Any thoughts on why would that be very important in these cases? Because if they can claim that, then they can say that Scripture is not the final authority. They can then move on tradition and the teachings of the leadership of those different groups. So, yeah, that's correct in some cases. In some cases, they're, it's specifically in the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Eastern Orthodox tradition that are not based solely on Scripture alone. They say, well, we've received this apostleship and so we are the sole interpreters, interpreters of, the, of the scriptures. And then we can add to, take away, especially in the Roman Catholic tradition, that's what has taken place. They say we are, the, they have, so when I sit, that when the Pope sits in the seat of Peter, he can speak, ex, uh, what's the statement, ex-cathedral, and make a decree that has the authority of the original apostles. It's very important. Seth. There are some Protestant traditions that have a soft view of it. Um, so Lutheranism has a little bit of, a, of an apostolic tradition to it, though they don't make the same kinds of claims. So the answer is yes and no. But now when you get to other groups, like Mormonism, for instance, why is it very crucial for the Mormons to have a, an apostleship? Go ahead, Mike. Because if they didn't have 
<laughs> That's absolutely right, because the idea, the teachings are foreign to the New Testament, so they have to, they have to say that they've received a new revelation. They've received a new revelation with a new apostleship. So, Seth, you were going to add something to that? Right, there's a Testament, the New Testament, and then therefore which is the final. Right. That, exactly. And so they need this seal of apostleship, which is interesting. Everybody, that means that everybody is admitting what? Who had the who has the ultimate authority? The apostles did. The apostles did. So that begs the question: are these apostleships legitimate? Well, I think we would know, well, they can't all be legitimate, <laughs> legitimate right? You will get into some uh, branches, not, not, I want to be careful how I speak, not mainstream Pentecostalism, but some branches of Pentecostalism, they've got apostles like nobody's business. Like, they just appoint them all the time, apostle this, apostle that. They view it as an office. Why, in that case, do they want the office of apostle? Anybody know? These are, these are people that are more biblically based, but they're still looking for this ap- apostolic. Yes? I would guess, um, could it be that what they, the so-called apostle deciphers is what the church is teaching? Uh, somewhat. It's really so that they can validate new prophecies and new revelations that are given to them. You'll find in many of those groups you'll find people claiming that they received a word from God. Or the bishop or the apostle will get up in front of the congregation and will not only sometimes explain the Bible, but will go beyond the Bible and claim that, office, claim that gift of apostleship and say that they have received a private revelation that they would like to share with you. Yes, Travis? Well, that's why the Pope has cardinals. Sure. Like the cardinals are like his marching apostles. Yeah. that he gives authority to right. to be able to preach the word that he can't when he's not around. Right. That's the whole, you know, that's the whole idea of him having multiple cardinals. Go ahead. And I think in the charismatic movement, apostleship is popular because they want to identify with various things that took place in the book of Acts, right. which is actually called the book of the Acts of the Apostles, that's a very good point. The, the, the original name of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And we'll, we're going to talk about this, the signs of apostleship. They want to claim the gifts of apostleship today. And so you find varying degrees of, varying degrees of what I would consider abuse of the biblical office of apostle throughout Christianity. Even some Baptists have an unhealthy view of uh, the, the office of the apostle. And you say, what are you referring to? Is anyone familiar with uh, a movement called landmarkism within Baptist, the Baptist tradition? It's sometimes referred to as the Baptist bride position. It's landmarkism. And what that advocates is that not an apostolic succession of bishops, but an, but an unbroken line of church succession from the New Testament. So they would teach that their church, it would be like as if we said, you know, Mount Carolina Baptist Church was started by 
another church that was started by another church that was started by another church, and it goes all the way back to Jesus and the apostles, some would say to John the Baptist. And it's a really 19th century view that was popularized among a, a lot of Baptists. So even Baptists have fallen into this, this error, in my opinion. Whereas what I am going to advocate for with the rest of the time we have tonight is that it's not an apostolic succession. It's an apostolic witness that we are called to be faithful to. The ap true apostolic succession is for m contemporary believers in every age to follow in the footsteps and to remain true to the teachings of the original apostles as the word was given by Christ. Now, with that being said, it's important that we understand who were the apostles, what made them apostles, and some more specifics about that. So if you would, look with me at the main points here on, your, on this insert. So the, the first thing, we read Ephesians 2.19, and now I want you to see the apostles' requirements. And I've compiled some information from a lot of sources. Uh, there's one article that was particularly helpful in that he summarized a lot of things, so I did rely heavily on that in putting this together. Um, but you'll find this in numerous places. This is a very traditional uh, biblical answer, very traditional Baptist understanding of this. Um, and these are several points I'll give you right now. Number one, you find scriptural evidence that one of the requirements to be an apostle was that you would be an eyewitness of the risen Christ, that you'd be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Give you a few references here. We'll start with Acts 121. Now, Acts 121, there was a there was a problem. Judas had died. Judas dies, and in Acts 1, because he committed suicide, right? And so in Acts 121, the apostles get together and right away they say, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must be one ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, this is interesting because when Judas died, the apostles did say we need to find a replacement for Judas. So you could make the argument, well, Ethan, aren't you kind of undermining everything that you said right now? Well, two points. One, uh, there is some debate as if this was necessary or not. Not all, not all Bible teachers believe that they should have appointed another apostle. In fact, the, the Bible never says they were commanded to. It just gives us the record that they did. However, even if we suppose that this was the right choice, what was the, the requirement that they were looking for? What were they looking? What was, who was it? Who would have fit the profile of this person to take Judas's spot? What, what would that person have to have done? There's a few requirements. Start with Jim. Right. They said, well, this person would have had to have been with us the whole time. What else? And would have had to, been a, had to be a witness to his resurrection. But, yes, Bill, did you have something? Was that a hand up or... I'll have to witness the risen Savior all the right. time. 
The common denominator is going to be, in all the passages we look at, that the, the requirement to have witnessed the Savior risen. So, in fact, Bill brings up Paul. Let's go to that. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2, Paul is actually, this is interesting, Paul has to defend his apostleship. Well, why would he have to defend his apostleship? They challenged him. Why did they challenge him? They challenged him because they didn't want to obey what he said. They didn't want to, so the whole point is here, they knew if he was an apostle, they would have to obey what he said. But if not, I don't know what's going on with that car. It just keeps going and stopping and going and stopping. But is it one of ours or? All right. Hopefully we get to the bottom of the, the um, there's a demon in the cars. If only we had an apostle to ca cast him out. So go ahead, uh, Mike. Paul was an apostle, and because they one of the requirements is from the beginning they had to Well, that was the requirement that the, the disciples looked for in Acts 1, but it doesn't seem to be the ultimate requirement all the way through. The ultimate requirement all the way through seems to be that you have seen Jesus Christ. But then there's two more requirements that we're going to see as well. So look at the ones, look at the ones for... Uh, for Paul. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. After that, speaking of the resurrected Savior, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles." that I'm not meet to be called an apostle but I, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You could also make the argument that Paul was there from the beginning because he was a student of the Pharisees. There's no reason to believe that Paul was not there for the teaching of John the Baptist or that Paul wasn't a young man that was aware of the teachings of Jesus because he would have been in training at that time. But either way, the requirement seems to be that you had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. It's going again. All right, stopped again. Number two, the second one. You need to have been personally appointed by Jesus. Now you could say, well, what about the Acts passage where they appointed um, Matthias? Well, they did say in that passage, let's cast lots to see who the Lord chooses. I think that's a difficult passage. Um, to be honest with you, the whole thing, the whole conversation is a little bit difficult. That's why there are some disagreements out there. This is not one where the Bible says, okay, this is how it goes A, B, and C. All of us are coming at the scripture and we're putting a complete picture together as we study all of the passages. But if you come to this idea of being personally appointed by Jesus, you go to Mark 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, And he goes up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came to him. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils. Romans 1 and 1, speaking of the specific call to apostleship. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Romans 1.5, Paul says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Galatians 1.1 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, not of men, 
neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. 1 Timothy 2.7, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. So the, the requirement seems to have been that to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord and to be personally called to apostleship by Jesus, that Jesus chose his apostles, including the apostle Paul. Thirdly, the validation by signs and wonders, that there were signs of apostleship. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And this is where friends in the charismatic movement, this is the, the big disagreement that we have with the charismatic movement, and that is that they believe that the gifts, the miraculous gifts, were for all of the church at all times. Whereas we interpret passages like this to say, no, those gifts were signs of apostleship. They were apostolic gifts that were given to validate the message. Why? Because Jesus says, you guys are going to speak my word to the world. So to back up what you're saying, to evidence that you have my authority, to give evidence that you are my chosen apostles, I give you this power to do signs and wonders. Now, of course, that extended, that extended to other people that, uh, that were not the official apostles but were joining in the apostolic mission, the apostles and prophets as, re as referenced in Ephesians. But you find in church history that you, you and this is, of course, outside the Bible, but you do find in, uh, after the death of the apostles, you do not see historical records of signs and wonders and miracles Continuing. So he says, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 speaks to this again. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? The witnesses. This is what Jesus said. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Acts 5 and verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Now, those are arguments um, that are given. Now, I do want to make one argument from silence. Many of you probably know that an argument from silence is not the strongest argument, but adding to the discussion, I think it's worth noting this. In the scripture, we have more than one reference to a process for establishing officers in the church. If you want to establish elders, this is who you look for, this is what their requirements are, and you need to ordain them in the church. If you want to establish deacons, this is who you're looking for, this is what you do. There's no New Testament instruction anywhere given about how to select an apostle. Don't you think that would, that's a, a fairly strong argument from silence? I mean, maybe not, but to me, that's persuasive to me, that if this is such an important role and if this is to continue, that there should be 
some clear instruction on it, but we don't find that. We find ambiguity at, at you know, you know, the, the best you could say it's as ambiguous. To me, the clearest thing to say is that the, the role was specific and has ceased. Yes? Elder is the biblical word. You'll find three words in the Bible for the same office. And that's a whole other lesson, but it's pretty clear that a bishop, a pastor, and an elder are referring to the same role in the church. So there's two references where he says, hey, he said to the Ephesian church, all the elders of the Ephesian church feed the flock of God which is among you, which literally is the Greek word pastor, not taking, or feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, which is the Greek word for bishop. So you find, and there's, that's one of two passages where you find the same people being addressed with those three roles. So they speak more to the function of the office, elder, pastor, bishop, and then you have deacon. But you don't have anything regarding apostles at all, other than the mention that they were the foundation. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay, so let's move to this now, the last part. So we've seen that the apostles have a mission laying the foundation of the church. We've looked at the requirements for apostleship. And now finally, I want, you to sh- I want to show you the authority that the apostles had. And what's interesting, now you will find this among Roman Catholicism, among the cults, they will claim this authority. Our charismatic friends, they don't claim this same level of authority. because I think they understand how significant it is. Because the apostles had the same authority as Scripture. They had the same... Now, that doesn't mean that every time they spoke, they had that authority. But as they were given their writings, they they carry the same authority as Scripture. Now, you will find the, the view of the papacy as having that authority. You'll find that in the Mormon church. You'll find that, I think, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, that they'll claim that same level of authority because the Scriptures teach that. Now, interesting. I want us to notice this word, Scripture. It's a really important word. The word Scripture is the Greek word graphe. It occurs 51 times in the New Testament. Every single time it is mentioned, it refers to the sacred writings of the Old Testament. The Jews were careful with their words. When they said scripture, they're referring to the Old Testament revelation that they've been given. But I want, so I want you to see how their view of scripture goes. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. That means the literal breath of God. That God spoke his words through men. We don't believe in a mechanical process where they became robots, and, but, but that in their thought process, as the very words were formulated in their mind, came through their personality, written on their pens, or sometimes through their secretaries, as that word came out, it was the very breath of God that uttered those words upon them. That's what inspiration means. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter would speak of it this way. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now that, that means that it's not a, a person privately writing down some thoughts they have about God. This isn't a private interpretation, he says. 
For the prophecy came not in old time. Again, he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So this is a high view of Scripture. Now with that in mind, look what Peter says a few chapters later in the same book. How did they view the writings of these apostles? An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother who? Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So the apostle Peter, who is an unquestionable apostle, is vouching for the apostleship of who? Of Paul. And this is kind of funny too. As also in how many of his writings? You see this in verse 16? As also in all all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Now, if you ever thought Paul was hard to understand, you're not alone, because Peter says, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, in other words, they take them, as they do also the other what? Scriptures. There's that word graphe. The one time that it is used, the only time of the 51 occurrences that it's used referring to anything outside of the Old Testament scriptures. The, the Apostle Peter addresses the church and he regards the words of the Apostle Paul as on par with scripture. Jesus has vouched for Peter already what we see in, first, in, in John chapter 16. This is, this is, I believe, what Jesus has in mind when he says in the upper room, I have a lot more to tell you, but you're not ready yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak of himself, but all things that the Father has given him, that's what he's going to speak. He will testify of me. And so... We could talk more about it. There's more that could be said. And there are probably people that could explain it even better than I could. But that's my best attempt at understanding and, and talking through this idea of the apostolic authority of the New Testament and how that impacts our faith. Bill, go ahead. Well, the authority of Scripture, the fact that it's closed, is sealed by John. He says you should not add to or take away. Yeah. Don't add to the, yes. So that, uh, Revelation 22, 18, is referring to the whole scripture? I believe it is. It doesn't explicitly say. Some people interpret that as meaning the book of Revelation itself. I think the context, having give, it being the last book of the Bible, John being the last apostle, um, it's the final revelation of Christ. I do believe that it impacts all of it, but that's, that's difficult to conclusively say, to be, to be honest. I just try to, I try to not read all, to declare conclusively in things that I'm... I think that's a good interpretation of it, because I'm pretty sure in the Old Testament you'll find similar scripture with warnings not to add to it. Yeah, not adding, and that would say not adding to the law. To, yeah, so...
Any other thoughts on this uh, or questions or comments on this? Okay. Good. It's kind of a thinking one. But it's important because, and I shared this on Sunday, at some point you'll be challenged and to say, well, why do you accept this? Why do we believe this? Or, or you may be uh, influenced in another direction. At some point somebody may say, well, you know, you ought you to check this out. We have the authority of the apostles. It's like, well, let's understand this. Let's examine it. Let's make sure. Yeah. Right. And, and I think with that, it's, there's a balance, right? A church needs a healthy balance of teaching. Like, people are dealing with real-life issues in their lives, right? Like, they're having marriage struggles, and they're having financial struggles, and issues in their family, and feelings, and emotional struggles. The church needs to address those things. The gospel addresses that. But if all we address is the felt needs that we're experiencing now, without giving a foundation of truth or support... We're not, we're not faithfully continuing in the tradition of the apostles, right? And so I guess to summarize, I would say that, like, my understanding of, of apostolic succession, of the, uh, of the gift of the apostles, of what our place is in the 21st century, is we are faithful, we carry on the faith of the apostles, so long as we are faithful to the scriptures, and as, in fact, wait, let's look at one more verse. And it's on this handout right here, on the, on the main one. And this was the last one that I gave you here. And this is why I would, this is another reason where we do not need an apostle today. 1 John 2 and verse 27, the same apostle John says this, speaking to the church, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So as a biblicist, I have the word of the apostles, I have the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have the Holy Spirit. And so any church, that is the authority that we need. We do not need the authority of man. We don't need the authority of a human. You don't need the authority of me. Right? I'm, I'm given, and all pastors are given an oversight rule and a leadership and, a, and an authority rule, but when it comes to the authority of the interpretation, we are all the servants of the word. And your job is to keep me accountable as a servant of the word. We all submit to the authority of the scriptures. Yep. Two things. Well, biblicist would be like my. When I say a biblicist, I mean my my ultimate allegiance isn't to a denomination. It's not to being a Baptist or to being. It's to be to, biblical, okay. right? And then um, inverse.
Um, is that basically like saying that other than the anyone recorded that seeing Jesus um, after his death, they won't see Jesus until they die? No, I think of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. I think it means, my understanding of it is that Jesus was the perfect example of righteousness, but he's gone. So the Holy Spirit now points to, the, to perfect righteousness. So. Okay, very good. Well, we've gone over and um, we need to go to prayer time, so let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for the time that we've had tonight, and I just pray that um, you'd help us to be students of your word, help us to be... Lord, just have a hunger to know and to learn, to understand. But ultimately, I pray that that would cause us to love you more and to love others more and to make a bigger impact in the lives of people around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.